The vibration of change, that magical place where life shifts from struggle to ease, from stagnation to forward movement, from old ways of being to new ways of becoming. Yes, it can seem rather elusive to get there, but when you are in it, you feel it down to your very core, and it can positively affect everything in your life, from your relationships to your health and well-being, from your career path to your abundance, from the quality of your inner connection to the fullness of your self-expression. Here on The Christine Uptrich Show, we explore ways to get into that vibration of change with experts in the fields of consciousness, psychology, spirituality, health, healing, and science. Are you ready to step into your vibration of change? Welcome, everybody. You might be listening live in the Seattle area on 1150 AM KKNW, anywhere around the world on TransformationTalkRadio.com, or, of course, my professional page on Facebook, or perhaps after the fact on one of the dozens of podcasts or my YouTube channel. Thanks to Kyle, we're getting the the videos up onto the YouTube channel on a, a weekly basis, so please check that channel out. Also, quick announcement before I introduce our very impressive guest. Um, You know, in these days of censorship on social media, on YouTube, even Google searches, yes, I said the G word, I'm probably going to pique their interest now. Um, Videos are getting censored, audio recordings are getting censored. I did a really wonderful interview uh, with Dr. Lee Merritt, and I'm not even going to say about what it is, it's relating to health. Um, she's a, um, a, a Navy veteran, and she is an MD. She's been the head of like in, of national associations, and she had some very interesting things to say. And unfortunately, although that that show aired live, it was censored. And poor KKNW, they weren't allowed to stream to YouTube for a week because the facts that she was stating, based on research, went against the narrative. But Here's the good news, guys. If you want to listen to that, you can go to the Academy of Divine Knowledge. It's a subscription-based thing. I've got other presentations there, and there's some amazing, amazing doctors and um, consciousness experts and people who are, you know, teach meditation, a wide variety of things you can access, sensor-free, Academy of Divine Knowledge. And all you need to do is get up there and if you decide to sign up i think it's 33 dollars a month or you know it's, there's a discount for six months anyway if you want to sign up enter my last name up church like up in church together and you will get a 10 percent discount anyway enough of that speaking of important information that you know had a hard time coming out i'm sure that we're, we're, our guest today is going to talk all about his experience as a whistleblower And I think about whistleblowers these days, and I think about how important they are to our country, to our states, to our world, because oftentimes there's corporate interest that seems to try to circumvent the law, seems to try to take advantage of consumers, of taxpayers. And here's the thing, it's like, There's so much corporate interest behind things like social media and YouTube and Google. And there's so much corporate interest that backs our politicians that sometimes this information gets squelched. And our guest today is one of these impressive whistleblowers who has faced the the wrath of a couple of corporations and has lived to tell the tale and has saved taxpayers a lot of money. His name is Chris Rydell. He spent the last 40 years in the healthcare industry and more recently as one of the leading healthcare fraud fighters. He founded and served as the CEO of five healthcare companies, Hunter Hart and Hunter Laboratories, uh, Maris Laboratories, Microscan and Micromedia Systems. In May of 1992, Maris was ranked by Business Week as one of the 40th best small companies in America. So 40th on that list. He served as managing director for Providence Capital and, you know, which is a a boutique bank. Um, And for the past decade, he has concentrated his efforts on fraud fighting against medical labs. And we're gonna hear this story. And he's also written a book called Blood Money. And before I get into details about that with his bio, I want you to hear from him directly about his story as a whistleblower. He has um, illuminated some, some not only dysfunction, but some 
evil corporate greed and has saved taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars. I'd like to welcome our guest today, Chris Rydell. Hi, Chris. Good morning, Christine. You know, I have to tell you, after expanding my horizons beyond like mainstream media, the, you know, the, the results that come up on Google, you know, it's, when I expand my horizons, I've come to learn that there are a whole lot more whistleblowers than I ever realized. And it, and some of these whistleblowers not only get, they, they end up losing their jobs, um, they may end up losing their life's fortune, some of them end up dead. Mm -hmm. So being a whistleblower is no simple task. Can you please share with our listeners and viewers about your experience and what led you to take that difficult journey as a whistleblower? Sure. I had no idea when I started, uh, filed my first whistleblower lawsuit, that the odds of success are less than the odds of being hit by lightning. And that most whistleblowers end up unemployable, bankrupt and divorced. I mean, when the bad boy companies learn who the whistleblower is, they do everything in their power to destroy them. I mean, totally destroy them. In my case, uh, two weeks before we had our monumental settlement with the two blood brothers, Quest Diagnostics and Laboratory Corporation of America, we were facing imminent bankruptcy, both professionally, business and personally. And we would have been homeless ourselves were it not for that timely settlement. Wow. So tell us, you, you were running, running your own lab and um, what indicated to you that something was awry? Um, about two years, we built a beautiful state-of-the-art laboratory, the most modern instrumentation available. Uh, we had 150 employees. And uh, it was a, you know, a wonderful clinical laboratory in Northern California. Two years into it, one of my sales reps came to me and said, Chris, are a lot of doctors, almost all of them, hate the services of Quest and LabCorp. They want to use us. But for a small portion of their laboratory business, physicians are billed. Um, and Quest and LabCorp were billing below cost. So, you know, he wanted me to match these prices. He says, if you don't match these prices, I don't know how we're going to succeed. The reason they do that is it's a very simple loss leader pull through strategy. Doctors don't want to split specimens among many labs. It's too much work to figure out this guy goes here and this guy goes there. So if you can hook a doctor with really cheap pricing for five to 10% of the total business, you make a lot of money on Medicare, Medicaid and insurance. And that's the illegal business model of these corporate Goliaths. So first thing I did was call our regulatory council and said, if I attempt to do this, do I have any uh, legal liability? He goes, oh yeah. He says, first of all, uh, they're clear federal and state kickbacks. You can't give a discount to pull through uh, government business and particularly if the discount is below cost, because obviously the only reason they're doing it is to pull through the Medicare and the Medicaid. Uh, and secondly, in California and in about a dozen other states, um, it's required by statute that the laboratories pass on their lowest charge to any provider to the Medicaid programs. These are programs for the indigent in each state, you know, the, the people that just don't have any money. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's certainly expensive and they don't have enough funding for it. And, uh, you know, I did not believe at the time that these labs were passing the discounts on the Medicaid program. So it was on, I'm sorry, I learned no. one of them was, uh, and I had to then go out and get evidence that the other was. Once we had that, we had the law on our side, we had the facts on our side. We thought it would be a simple process of filing a whistleblower lawsuit. The government would see that they were losing a billion dollars a year, a billion in California. And uh, 
they would take quick action. Okay, so I just want you to reiterate the the setup because I, I I don't want to. It, it's like with the billing and the the grouping together of the you know uh, of the various um, accounts and and sending everything to one lab um, as opposed to like splitting it up. So tell us again exactly what was going on. West and LabCorp were billing the Medicaid program 20 to 40 times what their most favored clients were being billed. Okay, there we go. There we go. So they were they were going under cost for um, you know the, the regular clients. And then for Medicare and Medicaid, they were going way over. Is that right? right? Now, Medicare does not have uh, that law. For Medicare, it's just usually customary charge, which has never been defined. So we decided to sue only in California, where we had a clear-cut statute that the lowest charge had to be passed on to the Medicaid program. And the difference was about a billion dollars a year in fraudulent payments. Wow, so in other words, the, the taxpayers pay into the system to help protect the indigent who need medical care. And of course, we pay into that on the national level as well, but you focus on California. And so here we are funding this and they're giving these docs with you know the people who have regular insurance this discount but for the government funded, they're charging many, many, many times more and, and getting a whole lot of taxpayer funds. Exactly. Right. Taxpayers are being swindled. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you've illuminated it. You realize it's against the law. You bring a, a whistleblower um, a lawsuit and you're thinking it's going to be a done deal. What happened yeah. next? I was left with three choices. One, knowingly violate federal and state law to try and compete. I wasn't going to do that. Two, uh, close our laboratory, lay off 150 people, and write off most of our life savings, or try to stop the practice and level the playing field for all labs uh, and stop the fraud on taxpayers. And it took me four months to convince my wife, who was my partner in the business, she was the president, to go ahead and file the lawsuit, which we did. Okay, so, you know, you figure that's going to be, it, the evidence was clear, it sounds like. We had all the evidence. Yeah, you filed the law. had everything it needed. We had people prepared to testify. We had documents. We had everything. We then thought, what this happened? This is going to be a slam dunk. You know, this, we're going to get to this. We're going to get this over in six months. So it worked that way. <laughs> so, uh. For 18 months, you know, we sent out, uh, DOJ sent out investigative subpoenas to get fee schedules and other documents to, you know, prove the conspiracy, uh, but really nothing happened. And then we got a call saying uh, that the case was being transferred from San Diego to Sacramento, uh, where they were transferring all of their uh, health care fraud. And we got a really good assistant attorney general. And I'll never forget the first meeting we had with him. He says, guys, this is awful. I like this case. I'm going to take it up and we're going to prosecute. Uh, but here's how we're going to do it. We're going to be partners. I'm going to go out and buy an expensive computer system and program it to identify on an invoice by invoice basis for seven years the amount of charge, overcharge, because that's the kind of a damage claim that you can't solve. It's on a claim by claim basis. You guys are gonna do all the motion work, all, you know, study all the documents, do all the discovery, and we formed a true partnership. And that's the intent that Congress had in the whistleblower statute. So it worked perfectly. And uh, four and a half years later, uh, Fortunately, we got a trial date and companies generally don't do much until you have a trial date and they're facing a judge and jury and the penalties, if you're convicted, are so staggering. It's um, $22,000 a claim 
every claim. Plus, you're immediately out of all government programs. So it's a death sentence. No responsible board of directors can roll the dice and say, oh, we think we can beat this. And sure enough, as soon as we got a trial date, let's mediate this thing. Okay, so we went to mediation. And over the course of two days, we agreed on a, a settlement of uh, almost a quarter billion dollars for just one of the companies, uh, Quest, uh, in California. And then the other quickly folded their tent as well. Mm-hmm. All in all, we brought in about $300 for California taxpayers. $300? $300 million, I'm sorry. $300 million, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, so... Did they change their practices? No. And that was one of the things that really disturbed me. They said to the uh, assistant attorney general, uh, look, we can't change our practices overnight. I'm going, well, why not? It's against the law. Well, we have contracts and this and that. Give us a year. So the assistant attorney general agreed. And then when the year was over, they continued doing it. And nobody at DOJ or the Department of Health Services cared to have any more involvement with it. Then they went and labored the, the legislature and got the law overturned, which makes no sense for taxpayers. Wow. So you had invested all that time while they were doing their basically gathering, you know, current and future evidence and your lab was suffering because you were losing out to competition because of unfair practice. And well, it, was, it was worse than that. Uh, once they found out after three years that uh, myself and our laboratory were the whistleblowers, they attacked. They went to one of the largest insurance companies in California, Blue Shield. Now, together, LabCorp and Quest had 70 to 80% market share. So they, they, made a, they made a tremendous offering to Blue Shield. We will voluntarily reduce our fees 10% if you will throw Hunter Labs out of network. And when you lose a major insurance company, it's like a dagger to the heart. You are bleeding out because it costs patients more money and you can't possibly sell a new account. So we we lost a lot of money and that's where we ended up near bankruptcy. I wanted to keep the lab going throughout the litigation. So we kept funding it. So that practice also sounds illegal. I don't know if it you is. call it practice whatever. I think it is. And we filed uh, an antitrust suit against uh, Quest, LabCorp, and Blue Shield. And the judge threw it out without any discovery. He said, unless you can show me a document where they worked together, we knew they did because people told us this, I'm going to throw it out. And he did. How do you get a document without discovery? Wow. So what did you do next? Um, Well, the uh, assistant attorney general in California that we worked with, Dennis Fenwick, uh, is a member of this national organization called NAMFUKU, National Association for Medicare Fraud. And uh, he said, there's a whole bunch of other states that would like you to file the same lawsuit in their state that have the same state law and a whistleblower statute. So we did. We filed in seven other states. And we continued the fight and then um, expecting we'd get the same kind of treatment. We were wrong. Um, and in the book, Blood Money, the stories are absolutely amazing about how we were treated by these various attorney generals. Um, it, it was just an amazing fight. And then Hunter went into this program of cardiovascular disease. We had a whole cardiovascular disease management program. Most people don't know it, but today, with newer tests and newer treatments, almost 99% of people don't have to get the number one killer in the world. Isn't that That amazing? That is fascinating. And so we created that program, but at the same time, a couple of other labs did, and they also committed massive frauds. They paid doctors bribes every time they ordered a, a specimen from them. They created these gigantic panel panels of tests, many of them unnecessary, and uh, and said, "Doc, 
your patient will never get a bill. So there's no downside to you ordering these huge panels, which the government is going to pay thousands of dollars for. And how do you compete against that? Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to you working with attorneys general in various states. Now, first of all, the attorney general in a state, of course, and the federal government too, is supposed to be looking out for citizens' interests, looking out for the laws of the land, right? Yes. So can you share with us a little bit about um, the sorts of odd experiences you had with um, some of these attorneys? Uh, sure. Uh, one, of the, one of the interesting ones, and there are several, is in the state of Michigan. It took them four and a half years to decide this is a good case and we're going to intervene and join it with you. And so as soon as it was unsealed uh, uh, in a regular motion hearing, the judge set a trial date for three weeks later. Three weeks. Wow. And uh, the assistant attorney general said, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And my great lawyer, Neil McCarthy, says, don't worry. I'll be the first chair. You can be the second. We'll be ready to go. And the defendants immediately filed a summary judgment motion, which we thought, they had no chance on this. We have all the facts. So we get to the what, summary what, judgment. Okay, let's, let's back up. Um, what is a summary judgment? That's where you're asking the court to throw the whole lawsuit out. Okay, thank you. So we get into the hearing. And the judge looks at the assistant attorney general and says, it took you five years to get this on my desk. This is the oldest case I've ever seen. Dismissed. <gasps> yeah. Oh, doesn't but matter worst, whether it was horrible worst, against uh, the law. Yeah. Yeah. And um, one of the worst stories, though, uh, is in Florida. Fortunately, there they have a they had a really good attorney general, Pam Bondi, and they had a department of five people who put two years on this full time. And we shared discovery; we worked as partners. And so uh, we're getting close to trial when the LabCorp uh, lobbyist found some 26-year-old freshman legislator and convinced him to introduce a bill uh, retroactively making the lowest charge law gone. And, uh, you know, Pam Bondi, the attorney general, knew that this was going to come up in a hearing. So she literally hides out of the bathroom. She doesn't want anybody to know that she's there. And as soon as the LabCorp lobby is finished, he throws into the uh, hearing hall and everybody perks up and they go, well, we've never, Mrs. Bondi, welcome. We've never seen an attorney general in one of these meetings. Would you like to speak? Indeed, I would. And she says, this legislation is outrageous. We are involved in very active litigation. Taxpayers have been fleeced for over $100 million, and this is not something we should be entertaining. Uh, LabCorp should be handling this in the courts, not in the legislature. Unfortunately, it got tabled. But LabCorp wasn't done. It turns out that their lobbyist had been a personal attorney to the governor, Rick Scott. And I have to say, Rick Scott, who's now chairman of the National Republican Committee, he's a senator now, uh, himself was the CEO of Health Corporation of America when they had a double set of books. One that was accurate and one that they reported for Medicare, which was how they were paid, and they, they built Medicare out of billions, billions. And somehow he didn't get charged with anything. So he's no stranger to fraud. So the lab car lobbyist, his buddy, goes to him and says, Rick, help us out here. And so Rick did. He uh, sent a letter to the Department of Health Services saying, regardless of what the law says, you are going to testify that you've never heard about this and it's never been implemented. And they had no choice. They would have been fired if they didn't. Wow. And uh, the attorney generals were just, I mean, he's torpedoing his own attorney general's case. Yeah, and this is this is where we're at in our country right now. And it's so sad that corporate interests, greed, manipulates our political system, our judicial system, 
Yeah. And we're going to talk more about this, but stay tuned for more with Chris Rydell here when we come back in just a few moments. I'm Christine Upchurch, and this is a Stellar Reflections Minute. What does the word healing mean? Many think that healing merely means eliminating symptoms. However, based on my many years as a healer, I have a much broader perspective on the word. Healing can manifest in a variety of ways, including having physical problems resolved, becoming more emotionally centered, experiencing better relationships, gaining greater clarity, and feeling more spiritually connected. True healing always includes some level of transformation. Whatever form healing takes, there is one commonality, an improvement in quality of life. To me, the highest form of healing goes beyond aligning with wellness. It comes from recognizing our soul's voice and allowing it to speak through us. And in that sense, don't we all yearn to heal into our wholeness? Please visit StellarReflections.com or call 425-999-9836. That's 425-999-9836. The vibration of change. That magical place where life shifts from struggle to ease, from stagnation to forward movement, from old ways of being to new ways of becoming. If you're like I am, it can be rather elusive to get there, but when you are in it, you feel it down to your very core, don't you? And it can positively affect everything in your life, from your relationships to your health and well-being, from your career path to your abundance from the quality of that inner connection to the fullness of your self-expression. On the Christine Upchurch Show, we explore ways to get into that vibration of change with experts in the fields of consciousness, psychology, spirituality, health, healing, and science. Join me, Christine Upchurch, every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on KKNW AM 1150 and Transformation Talk Radio and learn new ways to step into your vibration of change. Welcome back to the Christine Upchurch Show here on KKNW AM 1150 in the Seattle area, Transformation Talk Radio around the world, and of course, Facebook Live. I'm talking to whistleblower and healthcare expert, Chris Rydell, who has written uh, a whodunit kind of book, a John Grisham type of book that called, called Blood Money, but it's not based on fiction. It is factual. You know, Chris... I think about the hard life of a whistleblower. And as we were talking about on the break, so many lose their livelihood. They get blacklisted in, in their you know, chosen career. Um, corporate interests seem to have this knack of manipulating politicians, manipulating situations. And some people even lose their lives. And I think about how you and your wife chose to move forward with this, and it, you thought it would be like six months or something, and it has been years. What kind of toll has being a whistleblower taken on, on your personal lives? Well, uh, in the very dark times before the settlement, life was very tough. Um, and I was a basket case. Fortunately, my wife had the strength to manage the, the finances where you're trying to rob Peter to pay Paul to keep the doors open. I couldn't do it. It was very, very difficult. Now, we fortunately came through it, and life is good again, and has been good since we had that first settlement. Hmm. So you but, said... But let, let, me just, let me just add, uh, I attended a conference of the top, I think it was 10 whistleblowers over the last two decades, and of these 10 people, all who got very large awards from the government, two of them would give it all back if they could just have their jobs back. And they were in tears. Because wow. they're unemployable now. They don't have to work, but it was a big part of their lives. Yeah. And, and that's the thing that it, it, it seems to me that They go after you financially, you know, one way or another. Um, they go after your, not only your livelihood, but, but your chosen career that you've invested so much into that you care about. Um, and they go after your reputation, not just in terms of your career, but ridiculing 
um, whistleblowers on social media. And, you know, I have seen situations where there have been whistleblowers who have gotten death threats on Twitter. Um, They've been maligned because the perspective that's being presented in the news and mainstream media and on social media isn't truth, but it's just the slant that the corporate corporate interests or, you know, the political interests wants to, to make in order to make somebody look bad. That's a huge toll to, to take for, for speaking truth and yeah. trying to do what's right. I mean, I'll tell you uh, one story. A whistleblower in Southern California um, was unemployable. His, his young family was living on ramen noodles. And they came home one day and their pet dog was nailed to their front door. And in the dog's blood was written, stop. Oh, horrible. And, and that was somebody probably hired, who knows, but... Um, oh, okay. sure, yeah. They're, they're going to hire people to go out and do this. These companies have a lot of money, and a whistleblower is threatening their illegal uh, business model for making that money. They don't want to stop. Their bonuses are tied up to it. Their shareholder prices could be affected. They'll do anything stop a whistleblower that they can think of yeah oh gosh do you have regrets for having done this no no i'm very proud to have stood up for taxpayers and uh tried tried to level the playing field for smaller labs and i've leveled it in many instances Uh, so the, the industry itself other than the defendants uh really very, very happy for what I did. And I think about the, the smaller businesses and, you know, over the last year and a half, what's happened to so many small businesses, but, you know, in particular with these labs, you think about good people, highly educated people who know their stuff, who may be very innovative, doing new things, um, who aren't allowed just by the nature of the game to move forward in the way that capitalism is designed to work, right? That that com- mm-hmm. that natural competition to, to bring your best gift forward, whether it's a service or you know some sort of product, and it's incredibly broken. So, what can we do? Well, there's a couple things. I think the biggest problem today is the Department of Justice's failure to punish bad boys by putting them in jail. Mm -hmm. Uh, But their motto is, we just want, quote, affordable civil settlements. So almost invariably, people who've stolen all this money will write a check for 20 to 30 cents on the amount of money they stole, and then go off to their next scheme. Quest has had 10 settlements. No one's lost their job. No one's gone to jail. Uh, it's it's remarkably, I mean, if you look at the risk-reward analysis, mm-hmm. we'll do it. And until DOJ changes that mindset, fraud is going to continue. The FBI estimates that over $200 billion a year is lost to fraud in healthcare. $200 billion. Wow. Last year... DOJ proudly announced that he collected $2.2 billion. It's less than 1% of the fraud. It's, it's awful. And I, and I think about how corporations, and, and this is probably not true of all corporations, because I, I do believe that there's some corporations out there that are, are you know, run by people of integrity, and there's trickle-down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there are so many. And I think about if anybody's watched the, the movie 1986, The Act, it's, um, you can go to 1986theact.com. It's a wonderful movie. And in it, they describe how a certain drug manufacturer did a, realize that there was something toxic in this thing that they were injecting into children, you know, universally across the country and, and other parts of the world. 
And they knew that all they needed to do was to change one ingredient. It, cost, it would have cost them less than one cent per dose. But they did a, a cost-benefit analysis. They compared what it would cost. Had They just had to like pay out the settlements for death and injury versus if they had to pay that extra less than penny a dose. And they found that it was less expensive not to change it. Um, and this eventually, there was like a smoking gun. There was a, you know, a, an internal memo. They knew about it. And I think about how if corporate greed is the motivator for our marketplace, that there, there's, there's something very broken with the system. It, it, it's, it's like you can have all sorts of laws. Clearly, you're, you've been talking about how there are laws, and sometimes people can have to pay, you know, according to the law. But you know, it still benefits them more to be breaking the law. Um, it, it seems like there's got to be some better solution to create some kind of integrity within the corporate world. There, well, one of my suggestions for uh, how you fix this is that um, if a company signs a settlement agreement um, and ends up paying some money, um, that recoup all of the money paid to the board of directors and senior management for the entire period of time that the fraud was going on. Oh. And if you do that, you're going to have the board hire regulatory specialists reporting to them not the CEO, because uh, you know it's, it's a, that could be a lot of money. Now you got some teeth. That's a great suggestion. That is a fabulous suggestion. So would that be implemented in terms of law within states, uh, or federal law? Actually, you don't have to interpret it at all. That's the terms for not going to trial. Huh? You go to trial, you're all done. You're going to have shareholder lawsuits. You're all going to get sued personally. They're not going to go there. So it's it's less painful for them to write those checks. And you don't need a law for that. Right. So what are some of the whistleblower laws and how could we improve upon those so that people don't suffer the way they're suffering when they become whistleblowers? Um, the whistleblower statute as I mentioned, is designed to be a public-private partnership, working hand in glove. And in my experience, when we have that, and my lawyers are doing a lot of work reducing the workload at the Department of Justice, and they have an insider like me guiding them, you have great success. But DOJ has this insular policy in most cases where they say, when you give them your lawsuit, thank you very much, go away. And that, they don't work. If they would just change that, we'd have much better outcomes. And of course, if they wouldn't, you know, if they made any settlement they entered into painful, then people are gonna relook at the risk reward analysis. Mm -hmm. It doesn't pay, people aren't gonna do it. Again, you're talking about the departments of justice, the attorneys general um, system within states. Of course, we've got the, the federal system as well. How do we bring greater integrity into the, those structures? I wish I knew. There are stories in the book about how we were treated by the federal department of justice that are just incredible. Give I us an example. A bad guy. Give us some. Give us an example of of that. Here's one. Uh, I ended up suing five of these cardiovascular companies that all had the same business model. They bribed doctors with cash payments for specimens. They put them on advisory boards and paid them a lot of money, whether they did any advising or not. They never billed patients. Well, that's clearly insurance fraud. Um, and so they prosecuted, they, they investigated all of them, and they actually prosecuted one and got a $119 million uh, verdict from the jury. 
And shortly after they did that, they told us they were not going to intervene in another one of these labs. And I said, well, why not? They're doing the same things. You know that. Well, I can't tell you why. Okay. But the good news is if justice decides not to, quote, intervene and take it over, we are free to prosecute on behalf of the government. So we kind of like it when they say that. And so we immediately cranked up discovery. And within three months, we got a call from this woman at DOJ saying, well, we've cut a deal behind your back. We're done. We go, what? We didn't, we weren't even consulted on this after we've done all this discovery? Wow. Nope. And it was a cheap deal. We we're just, you know, awful. Yeah. And, and of course, this is, you know, certainly bigger than the Departments of Justice. This has to do with corporate interests having infiltrated just about every aspect of our society. And yeah. I don't know what the solution to that is, but for instance, you, you can't find your way to natural healthcare and for certain types of illness using Google anymore because they've got corporate interests funding the avoidance of that. Um, you have corporate interests affecting politicians who are deciding, you know, what laws to, to, to try to bring forward or how to vote or what, you know, what they're going to yeah. say at a news conference. It's like, it, it seems like we're just so, they're so financially motivated that it's, it's infiltrated our entire system. I, I don't know what the solution is. Christine, this is not the country I grew up in. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But one of the things I'm fascinated by is that you were in this situation and you'd been working in healthcare many years. You, you know, had this lab and you were essentially being penalized because you weren't playing the illegal game and other companies were. But you ended up creating something new and innovating. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is you've, you've created and why it's important to our world? Well, um, I was one of the lucky ones that succeeded. And I found that uh, I really enjoyed being a detective because you can't file these things without a lot of evidence. So I had to learn how to interview people uh, and you know, look at documents. And I found I enjoyed it. So for me now, I, re I sold my lab in 2016, so I've been retired, but I spend a lot of time doing this and I find it very intellectually stimulating. I'm not afraid anymore. There's nothing these companies can do to me unless they take a hit out, which my wife worries about. So you say that, that you know, that's a possibility. What's it like to live with this concept that um, corporate interests can be so, so high and so evil that, you know, they do things like the horrific thing that they did to that, that poor dog um, or, you know, killing whistleblowers. It's, I mean, it's some of these people mysteriously die and, you know, commit suicide by like, you know, bludgeoning themselves to death. I mean, it's just like bizarre. You hear these stories. And if it were in a movie, you'd say, nobody would believe that. But, you know, some, some horrible things have happened. And there are whistleblowers. Or there are people who are bringing something forward that would greatly financially um, be the, the financial detriment of a big corporation. And strange things happen and they die. Um, What's it like to, to, to have that kind of fear? Um, well, when I was going through it, we were very scared. But I've talked to other whistleblowers who, one of them was deliberately run off a cliff in Puerto Rico where this pharmaceutical plant was. They were making unsterile drugs that went into the human body and failed quality insurance. This is Smith Klein, a big drug company. They tried to kill her. So when she woke up in a hospital, she immediately uh, somehow got to the United States. 
she said she didn't think they would have done that in the United States. But the worst of all is uh, the bravest whistleblower I know. He was an Indian and he uh, had been educated in the United States and he went to India where all of our generic drugs are made, all of them. We no longer have a generic drug industry. And the Indian culture is one of dishonesty. They wouldn't keep quality control records. If they even did quality control, the State Department uh, agreed with the India State Department that FDA couldn't go into any manufacturing facility without a 30-day notice. And during that time, they created all these fictitious records. And uh, there was one instance where they had a drug that failed and uh, it was unsterile. And they, you know, this guy was saying he was the quality assurance manager. We have to discard this. And they go, no, 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 no. Let's just sell it to Africa. So what if a bunch of Africans die? And this is at a senior level meeting. And so uh, he, he filed, you know, he went to FDA, they didn't do anything. So he filed a whistleblower lawsuit at the recommendation of his FDA contact. And he had to leave the country because in India, they just, they just murdered him. So as somebody who has seen the dark side to all this, what is it that gives you hope? That the whistleblowers I've met, not one of them did it for profit. They couldn't live with what they discovered. These are brave uh, people of integrity. And it, it gives me hope that there are a lot of them out there. And as you know, whistleblowers become more mentioned in the press, I'm hoping it'll vote, motivate more people to come forward. And I have a chapter in the book, Rules for Whistleblowers. There are things you can do to protect yourself. And anybody who's considering it should get the book and read Rules for Whistleblowers. Mm -hmm. And it's called Blood Money. Blood Money. And it's doing well on Amazon, I hear. Is that right? It's an Amazon bestseller. That's great. That's great. How long has it been out? Came out in October. Okay. So yeah, that's, that's fabulous. And it's, it's the kind of thing where truth is crazier than fiction. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of people have told me that they, they couldn't put it down. You know, it was so scary. Yeah. So in terms of making consumer choices, I think about how these, these corporations are doing some, sometimes they're doing these unsavory things, illegal things, things that uh, lack integrity. And- Things that kill people. Thing, and things that kill people, yes. So they only exist because we as consumers are funding them, right? As individuals, it's just a minuscule amount, but as collective group, we can have a lot of power. How, how do people find out about um, which companies are doing things that are out of integrity? I, is there some sort of website or some sort of no. um, social media group? Uh, well, they can go to my website and or read the book and learn uh -huh. about the, you know, the dozens of companies that I've, you know, gone after. Other than that, no. Yeah. And I know that um, there are websites and apps for phones that have things like, um, you know, whether something has an ingredient that was sourced from, you know, palm palm shortening that that is affecting the orangutans or, you know, that that has GMOs in it or whatever. It seems to me that this would be a really important way of identifying which corporations um, should have to pay because consumers are choosing to go to a different company for their, their service or their product. You know, it would sure be nice. And one of the things that might accomplish that is to make these companies on their website prominently display all settlements. Now, when you yes. read about how they've killed people, or yeah. made people have surgeries they didn't need. Right. Uh, people are going to, you know, take a step back. Yeah. And, and it's the sort of thing where um, 
there are some big pharma companies right now that are involved in, I'm not even going to say the word, um, who have really bad track records in terms of like the, having to pay out the biggest settlements yes. uh, or never having developed a product that was successful. And they're at the forefront right now. So something's really broken because people think, oh, well, they're being referred to in the media as the leaders in this industry when in fact they may be the leaders in, in corruption. They may be the leaders in, in, in terms of those who have lost the most money or haven't made, you know, haven't made any money. You know, it's, it's just crazy times. But it'd be great to have that information out there. And whether or not you can get corporations to put those settlements on their websites, one thing. Well, but if, if you can demand it, you don't want to go to trial? This is going on the website. Yeah, that's that's they, important. They have, justice has so much power. No company can afford to run the risk of being destroyed if they lose. So do you have any sense of um, what percentage of people know that there's wrongdoing, but don't come forth as whistleblowers because they know that there would be a high price to pay? A lot. A lot. And I've personally spoken with a lot in my discovery and invited them to join me and they go, oh, no, 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 no. I'll, you know, I'll help you behind the scenes, but I, I can't, I can't be publicly involved. They're afraid and, like and they have every reason to be afraid. Right. And, you know, be afraid for their families, for their pets, for their livelihood, for their career. Um, yeah, it's, it's scary. I want to make sure that people know how they can connect with you. What's your website? Uh, ChrisRidellAuthor.com, R-I-E-D-E-L. Uh -huh. And I, I really welcome people reaching out to me. Okay. So you hear that. If you if you are a wannabe whistleblower, you got information, or you're curious about um, his journey, there's some good videos on his website, too. And, of course, the link to his relatively new book, Blood Bunny. So, yeah. Do you have any final message for our viewers and listeners, Chris. I want to thank personally all of the people who've had the courage to get involved and stand up for integrity and taxpayers. I've met many of you and you're all marvelous, brave people. Mm. Yeah, and I think about what you've been through, almost financial ruin, a lot of fear along the way, um, you and your wife. And mm -hmm. I want to thank you for having the integrity and the courage and the fortitude to see this through and, and to have an effect not only on, on your own state, but to reach out and, and try to help people in other parts of our country. So thank you, Chris, for, for being a whistleblower and doing it in the way that you've done it. Thank you, Christine. And thank you for joining us here today. I really appreciate it. Well, I enjoyed our time together. And I wanna thank our viewers and listeners for joining us and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to empower yourself to step further into your vibration of change, please visit my website at christineupchurch.com where you can learn more about my insights, upcoming events, and private sessions.